0: We're Mistio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. So we are in Ruth. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of Ruth. It's in the Old Testament. Uh, you're going to find Joshua, then Judges, then Ruth in the Old Testament. If you have an app, you can tap there as well. But we are going to be in Ruth chapter two this morning, okay? While you're turning there, while you're finding that, I just wanted to share with you. So yesterday, the Suarez hosted a kid's barbecue for the Missio kids who haven't been able to get into classes and see each other as much lately. And so they did that outside and had a good time. And I went and I did some of the shopping for that to get the hot dogs. And while I was going through the checkout line, I, I set everything onto the like the conveyor belt, you know, for the checkout. And I put everything in a nice order so that the dude or the gal who was bagging it for me would be able to like, all right, the heavy stuff on the bottom, make sure you're putting the buns and the chips on the top, right? And I like I was super organized with it too. I had everything in its like category and just nice and neat. And I'm waiting. And then as they're checking out the person in front of me, my stuff starts moving and then it starts getting squished. Let me show you what I'm talking about, actually, because I I don't know if I can adequately explain this without showing you. So here's the conveyor belt. Here's all my stuff, right? Like I put down my case of water first and then like the hot dogs and the buns next and the chips and all that. That's my stuff. And then there's this bar that comes off of the conveyor belt and does this thing. And so everything that's flowing this way gets pushed like this. And the chips are getting crammed in here and dying. And then it lets it come back here and go back again. And I'm like, what's the point of that? Seriously, why? Why would you do that? And so I asked the guy who was checking me out, he wasn't checking me out, but, you know, he was checking my stuff out. And I was like, hey, what's the point of that? I'm just curious. Like, what, what does that thing do? And he was like, what are you talking about? And I said, this little bar right here that squishes all my stuff. And it was also, like, taking the divider away. It was pushing the divider off to the side. So now my stuff's getting mixed in with the guy in front of me. And I was like, I'm just curious. Like, why is that there? And he's like, oh, that's a, uh, that's a. Uh, Huh? That was well, so. It, I don't know what that's for. What's that? And he like looks back to like the person, the other cashier, and he's like, "What?" But they're busy. He's like, "What?" Uh, I don't know, man. I, I don't know what to tell you. And I was like, "All right, that was, as long as we're on the same page here, you know, I'm good. Whatever." It's got to serve some kind of purpose, right? Does anybody here know what purpose it serves? I even tried looking it up. It was driving me nuts. But I didn't know what to look for. I'm like, bar on the conveyor belt. Like, what? I couldn't find it. I couldn't find what was going on or what it does. But somebody manufactured that thing. They designed that thing. They built that thing. They put it there for a purpose, right? It's got to do something that they thought was worthwhile doing. I just don't know what it is. And I'm sharing that because that's kind of what Ruth chapter 2 did to me this week. Like, I had all my categories, I had everything like nice and neat in my head of what I thought Ruth was about and what I thought Ruth chapter two in particular was about. And then I was reading it, like actually reading it, not like just going through the stories that I remember hearing, you know? And I was praying and I was trying to listen to what the spirit of God was speaking. And it was like, all my stuff was getting jumbled up and chips were getting smashed. And I'm like, what's happening and sometimes, a lot of times, like God does that, like his, his word does that, his spirit does something like that where it's like, we don't know what he's doing in our life. And we're like, what are you doing? Like, what, what's the point of this? And sometimes we never know the point, but he's doing something. But oftentimes he's very gracious and actually revealing to us what it is he is doing. And I think if we can listen intently, if we can listen honestly and kind of set our categories aside, the, the, the nice and neat things we thought we understood about who God is and how he's at work in his world and what culture is and and what it should look like, then perhaps we'll gain some understanding as to why some of those things are starting to get jumbled. And and we'll start to see and understand through this book what God is actually doing and what he's saying to us in Ruth chapter two. And so in order to do that though, we have to remember as we come to this book, we said this last week, we are entering into this story as foreigners. Foreigners right? Ruth herself, she's a, she's a foreigner in the story. It's a story about the Israelites and about their God. And Ruth is a Moabite and she's a foreigner. And many historians believe they had darker skin. They were probably part of like what becomes African descent. I don't know. I have, I'm not a historian, but this is what many have said. Uh, and they were hated by the Israelites, hated by them. And Ruth is entering now where we left off at the end of chapter one. She's entering now as a foreign widow who has been barren, hasn't been able to to have children, poor. And she's going with her mother-in-law who's in pretty much the same position. And they're going into this, this city where now Ruth, she's entering a new culture, a new land, a new story. And yet we have to remember, we are entering this story in the same way. We're foreigners to this story. This is not written to 2020 Americans. This was written about an ancient Near Eastern culture. So across the other side of the world, thousands and thousands of years ago, the people who spoke a different language and had different customs. And so as we enter into the story, we need to come with some humility and some sober-mindedness about who we are Recognizing just as Ruth though becomes welcomed into this story, that God has also welcomed us into this story through Jesus. But we come with that humility saying only because of Jesus. And so spirit, would you help us open our eyes and see what you're speaking to us? So what I'm going to do, this is a little different from last week where we pretty much read uh, the text in, in large part and then we started examining it and talking about it. We're just going to allow the text to continue to shape us and navigate us and guide us and maybe crush some of our chips along the way, okay? So I'm going to read and we're going to discuss it as we read through chapter two. Sound good? Pray with me first. Father, would you help us to set our categories aside, to set our ideas and our ideals aside for a moment? and allow you to speak truthfully, honestly, lovingly to us through your word that was written many, many years ago. Spirit, allow us to be transformed by you today to look more and more like your family and like your perfect son, Jesus. And It's in his name we pray, amen. So, Ruth and Naomi, at the end of chapter one, they had just traveled to, back to Bethlehem, the house of bread is what that is translated to, which didn't have bread before. That's why Naomi's family came to Moab a long time ago because there was a famine. But now they've heard after she, Naomi lost her husband, she lost her two sons, and now she just has her two daughter-in-laws who are Moabites. She learns there's bread back in Bethlehem. And so she starts to travel back, but then she goes, wait, this is not gonna go well for my two foreigner daughter-in-laws. As women, they can't really provide for themselves. And as foreigners, they will be ostracized and oppressed. And so go back to your own families. And Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah goes back to her family. But Ruth says, no, I will live where you live. And I will be with you. And your people will be my people and your God will be my God, which we looked at last week is a mirror statement to what God said to his people over and over and over again. I will dwell among you. You will be my people and I will be your God. And we get this beautiful picture of that culminating finally in Revelation 21, verse three, where someone shouts from the heavens and God dwells among them and they are his people and he is their God. And So that's the hope. That's the hope in a broken, messed up world that we as people trying to follow after this God and following Jesus hold on to is that one day we will dwell eternally with the living God. We will be his people. He will be our God. He will be with us. And, and Ruth mirrors that sentiment back to Naomi, showing this faithfulness to, to a, a woman who came from a nation who worshiped other gods, but she was proving to be more faithful than the Israelites. So now these two show up, they're in Bethlehem. And this is where we find ourselves. Ruth chapter two, verse one. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. Remember her husband, Elimelech, who passed away. He was a prominent man of noble character from Elimelech's family. His name was Boaz. And we talked a lot last week about how names had very meaningful translations in this book. And Boaz means in his strength or having strength. So there's a new character that just entered this story. It's no longer just Naomi and Ruth. There's this guy named Boaz. Ruth the Moabitess asked Naomi, will you let me go into the fields and gather fallen grain behind someone with whom I find favor? And Naomi answered, go ahead, my daughter. So Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. Now, pause for just some cultural context right there, okay? What would happen is there was this thing called gleaning, And in fact, we find that in Deuteronomy chapter 24, that God commanded his people that when you are going through and you are reaping harvest throughout your crops, don't go back and go, oh, I left some here. Whatever you didn't get on your first pass, allow people to come through and to gather that for themselves. People who couldn't take care of themselves with their own fields. And so actually, if we could jump ahead to Deuteronomy 24 on the screen, Let's read that. Deuteronomy chapter 24, starting in verse 19. When you reap the harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, do not go back to get it. It is to be left for the resident alien. That sounds weird. We're not talking UFOs. That means the foreigner, the person who doesn't come from where you are, right? The fatherless and the widow so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you knock down the fruit from your olive tree, do not go over the branches again. What remains will be for the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, do not glean what is left. What remains will be for the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow. And then God does this, just to drive it home, to really make it stick. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this. Why? Why take care of other foreigners coming through? Why take care of vulnerable people coming through? Remember, you were a vulnerable foreign slave who was controlled and occupied by Egypt at one time too. Remember, you are no better. And so just as I have cared for you and I have provided for you now by bringing you into this land to call your own, I'm asking you, to also care for and provide for the vulnerable who enter in. This is the thing that we always come back to, right? Is that when God first called Israel, when he first called this man, Abraham, to be a father of a nation and a father of many, what he says is, I will bless you, so what? So that you can be a blessing. You only have this land, Israel, this promised land, because I brought you into it. I have blessed you with it. So now, how will you use it to bless others? You could say, and I know this is a trigger word in our society and our culture right now, you could say Israel was privileged with their promised land, with their fields, with their crops. Is that a bad thing? No. No, God blessed them. That's That's what that is. He blessed them to be a blessing. It's what you do with that privilege and power now. It's what you do with it. You don't have to apologize for having, but how do you use it to care for the vulnerable around you? And that's what we're gonna see unfold in this story. Now, the end of verse three, where we left off. So Ruth entered in, she left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. She happened to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was from a Lemelech's family. The actual literal translation of this is by chance, by chance, as we, we would say that in our culture, as luck would have it. Like she just so happened to come across Boaz's field. She didn't know who this guy was. All right. We were told as, as listeners, as readers of the story at the beginning, hey, there's this guy Boaz. Okay. It's, it's like a foreshadowing. There's this guy, but hold on. Let's see what happens. Ruth just so happens to go to the field that Boaz owns. Remember, we, we said last week too, we don't actually hear the name of God, of Yahweh, of the Lord mentioned a lot throughout this whole book. But what we see is that God is providing, he is providentially working all throughout the book behind the scenes. And it's a beautiful reminder to us, whatever you are dealing with right now, that God is at work in his world still, even if you don't see it. He's always at work behind the scenes. Verse four, later when Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, he said to the harvesters, the Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they replied. You can always, in the Old Testament, you can tell a lot about the character of a person by the first words that's written down that they say. So this guy Boaz seems to be a righteous, noble man who follows the Lord. Verse five, Boaz asked his servant who was in charge of the harvesters, whose young woman is this? And I love that. I, I, think it's like, I, I think it's hilarious because it's almost like he's like walking by and then he does a double take and he's like, who is that? Right? Like, I don't know if that's the case. Honestly, I don't know if, if there is something like becoming of Ruth that he was like taking notice of her or if it was because she looked different than everybody else. And he's like, okay, who's, who's this person? Or I just don't recognize this person. I didn't see them here yesterday working in the fields. For whatever reason, though, providentially, God allows Boaz to take notice of Ruth, the vulnerable. Whose young woman is this? And the servant answered, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the territory of Moab. She asked, will you let me gather fallen grain among the bundles behind the harvesters? She came and has been on her feet since early morning, except that she rested a little in my shelter. Now, gleaning, I don't know if the way I described it maybe gave us a picture of it in our heads, but it's not like this picture where it's like these people are going through the fields and like doing hard work and taking all the the crops off, and then like stuff falls from their basket and someone just comes along and picks up the scraps and like, all right, free food, you know? It's not like that. Like they were going through and taking things off that were left on the tree too. And it was actually very hard work. It was very laborious. It was very physically demanding on people. And you had to carry these heavy, heavy sacks if you were successful in what you were gathering along with you the whole time. You don't get to go set them down somewhere because someone else is gonna take it, right? So you're, you're taking that with you and she's there all day long. She's working hard. Working hard. I gotta tell you you, you, you guys know, most of you at least here know, we, with Cultivate, we are trying to employ and teach transferable job and life skills to vulnerable youth. So youth that are uh, either here as refugees or they're about to age out of the foster care system or they're just in a, in a home life where it's at risk and maybe they're at risk of, of homelessness or losing their home. And so we employ them, we give them some skills and some trades. I have to tell you just, to be honest, it's just a fact from what we've seen this is our experience. The hardest working of them are the refugee kids. They are working hard. And there are many of them working multiple jobs. Because as Americans, we've gotten very comfortable, right? And a lot of times we feel like there's going to be stuff handed out to us. Ruth knows she's in a tough spot. and She's got to work to provide for her and her mother-in-law, who's probably too old to go out and do what she's doing. And so that's what's happening here. And then verse 8, then Boaz said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, don't go and gather grain in another field and don't leave this one, but stay here close to my female servants. See which field they are harvesting and follow them. Haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go and drink from the jars the young men have filled. She fell face down, bowed to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor with you? so that you notice me, although I am a foreigner. That word favor is also the word grace. And it's this word that is usually found from someone of a higher stature given to someone of a lower stature. And she's saying, why, why would you give this to me? I'm undeserving of that. Why have you found favor with me? Boaz answered her in verse 11, everything you have done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me how you left your father and mother and your native land and how you came to a people you didn't previously know. May the Lord reward you for what you have done and may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. Take note of that, we're gonna come back to it. My Lord, she said, I have found favor with you for you have comforted and encouraged your servant, although I am not like one of your female servants. Verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz told her, come over here and have some bread and dip it in the vinegar sauce. When you go to like uh, any Italian restaurant, you know, and they give you that bread, it's like focaccia bread or something nice like that. It's got like rosemary sprinkled on it. And they give you that plate with the oil and the vinegar and you dip it in there, that stuff's delicious. That's what that makes me think of right there. It's like, man, that, that sounds like a good meal right there, right? So he says, Dip it in the vinegar sauce. So she sat beside the harvesters and he offered her roasted grain. She ate and was satisfied and had some left over. I'm gonna pause right there. I don't know if, if we catch just on first glance how significant and how scandalous that is. What just happened right there? Who you share a table with in this culture that we're entering into right now, who you share a table with is so significant. What you're saying is you are like family. What you're saying is, is I welcome you into community. That in this culture of honor, shame, it's a culture that someone in your family does something negatively. What it does is it brings shame on the whole family. And Boaz is saying, hey, foreigner, Not just foreigner, but foreigner from a land we hate. Widowed, barren, which brings shame upon a family. If you cannot produce children, it would have brought shame. Poor woman, come and sit at my table. Not just that, come sit at my table and eat next to everyone around you. Eat next to my community, eat with me. Take the bread and dip it in the same Vinegar that we're dipping into. You're sharing life with us now. You are welcomed in as one of us. And not only that, he told her, hey, anytime you want to get something to drink, have one of my men fill jars for you. Moabites brought water to Israelites. Not the other way around. Women brought water to men. Not the other way around. Boaz is this man who's got much strength. Not, I'm not talking about the dude's been working out. His name, with strength, he has a lot of power, position, authority. You could say privilege. He has been blessed by the Lord to what? Be a blessing. He remembers that command in Deuteronomy. And even though Boaz has every opportunity to take advantage of Ruth, he sees his responsibility to care for her. What does he tell her? Don't go into the other fields. You know what's going to happen to you. there. And I don't want to have to spell this out, right? But like, what would happen to a single vulnerable woman going and working in the fields who didn't have, there was no hashtag me too movement to fall back on. There's no way to get this out there to the media. There is no one who would believe you or care if you went and told what had happened. You could very easily, and this happened all the time, get taken advantage of by men in the fields. And Boaz says, don't go to another field, stay here. We will watch over you, we will protect you. And he says this, he goes, have I not commanded my workers to not touch you, to not bring you harm. He doesn't say, hey, stay here because like I was checking you out earlier. I think you're cute. Stick around and I'll make sure no one touches you. No, no, no. He just just meets her for this day. And he's like, have I not commanded? What he's saying is what's being revealed is haven't you felt safe here? Why? Because Boaz has set up this culture. He has set up this climate where That does not happen in my field. We care for and we protect the vulnerable in this field. So Ruth has entered into that and she's felt that, she's experienced it. Now we're gonna find out more about Boaz in coming weeks. We're gonna find out that if you remember Rahab, the prostitute who actually sheltered a bunch of Israelites into their city and she was not an Israelite herself, but she gets brought into the community and the family because she welcomed them that that's actually Boaz's mom. And so maybe, maybe Boaz has a soft, tender spot for people who are outside of this Israelite community, right? Because he has his mom to look at that with with that story. Maybe he remembers, like we said, from Deuteronomy 24, the command God gave. Maybe also Boaz remembers that they're not too far off from the Moabites after all. Remember the Moabites, we said they came from this weird relationship, right? Between Lot and his daughter. Who was Lot? Lot was the nephew of Abraham, the father of Israel. They're family, you guys. They're connected. Yes, it's a sketchy family tree. Yeah, there's a shady past in there. But they're, they're connected. They're family. They're family. And as Abraham cared for Lot at many times throughout the scripture, we're seeing Israel was also called to care for the Moabites. Problem was, they didn't do so well at that. And they were at war with each other oftentimes. And they despised one another. But Boaz, Boaz, not a perfect man, but being a picture to us here of what Israel was supposed to look like, is caring for this Moabitess woman who's coming into his community. And he's welcoming her in, treating them like family, like an older brother, so to speak, right? What are good older brothers supposed to do? Some of you have had older brothers. I've had some older brothers that like, we're great. We love each other. But man, there were some times like I I took the hardest beatings from older brothers, which taught me how to fight other people. So that was good. But Sometimes older brother is not so good. Usually, what, it, what an older brother is supposed to look like is someone who offers care and protection. And Boaz is taking this place as an older brother. There was one time when I was 16, and I was at my mom's house. I was chilling on her couch, watching some TV. And we lived in this little pocket of ghetto just outside of Arrowhead. I know it sounds sounds like that doesn't make sense, but it's true. 67th in, in Greenway, and we were in this mobile home park, and I'm there on the couch. My little sister, who's about 10 at the time, was somewhere in the house. And then my two younger brothers, who were 12 and 14 at the time, were out back. And they were standing up on the shed and they were doing something. I, I didn't know what and I didn't care. I was just trying to watch my family feud on the TV. Little did I know, my family was causing a feud back there. They were standing on the back of the shed and they were shouting at these other guys across the fence, I didn't know this was going on until I see them barge through the back door and they're heading straight to the front door like they're on a mission. And I'm like, okay, something's up. What's going on? And they're like, oh, we were back there talking to these dudes and they were talking to us and we're going to fight them out front now. And I'm like, whoa, Couple, couple questions for you. One who started it, and I look at one of my brothers, I know. And my, my, the older of the two, the 14 year old, he's like, yeah, it was Tommy. The 12 year old. He started it. I'm like, yeah, okay, that makes sense two, who are you talking to? They're like, well, Tommy. This is another dude named Tommy. And I know who Tommy is. Tommy is about 25 at this time. Tommy is a gangbanger. Tommy's a dealer. Tommy always is packing and he's always traveling in a pack. And I'm like, how many guys are you talking about? I don't know. There's like four or five. We're going to go fight them though. I'm like, you ain't doing nothing. Shut up and sit down on this couch. My brothers never listened to me. For some reason, this time they did. And I think it's because they knew they were in trouble, right? So they sit on the couch and I go out the front door and I'm like, oh, here we go, great. And I see, sure enough, this car whip around the corner and it comes screeching up and it parks about three houses down across the street. And then five guys get out of the car. And the first thing that came to my head was, I need to make sure they don't get onto our property. I need to make sure they don't get to my little brothers and to my sister who's in the house. So I just start walking right up to them. And I try to get like the best swagger I can come up with, you know? (laughs) And in the deepest, most manliest 16-year-old voice I can muster, I'm like, what's up, fellas? It didn't sound (laughs) very manly. And they're like, who are you? And I'm like, I'm Tommy and Jason's brother. What's going on? They're like, oh, yeah? And then one of the guys pulls up his shirt and he's got a gun sitting right there. And I'm like, fantastic. If I don't die right now and you don't kill my little brothers, I'm going to go kill them, right? So we start talking. And honestly, I don't remember everything I said, but it ended with something to the effect of, listen, those are children and they're also idiots. And so if you have a problem with them, you come to me because I'm their older brother. I will take care of it. If you don't feel like that solves it, you can deal with me. You can take it out on me, but I'm covering them. You don't get to come to them. You come to me and I'll handle it. And then I'm just like shaking. And then the one dude like puts his shirt back and I'm like, well, that's a good sign. And then Tom is like, all right, I respect that. And shakes my hand. I shake all their hands. They get in the car and they leave. And I'm like, oh, thank you, Jesus. And then I go walk back in the house and then my brothers are like at the window, right? And they're like, what happened? What'd you say? What'd you do? What'd you do? And I'm like, you know, I just told them a few things and they didn't want to deal with it. So they left and they're like, oh, and I, was, I was a hero, right? What did I do in that story? Like I wasn't always a good older brother. I can tell you about the times I beat them up, not for good reasons, right? But in that moment, That's a picture of what a a good older sibling does. Caring for and protecting your younger siblings, right? Caring for and protect. Even when the responsibility falls on them, like they, they did it. It was their mess. I didn't have to go clean it up. I stepped into the mess on their behalf. I stepped into the danger to shield and protect them from it. I took the responsibility and I... I cared for them in love. Like Boaz says here, you have come to seek shelter under the wings of the Lord. But who was the Lord using to do that? Boaz. God was was bringing Ruth and Naomi, she didn't even know it yet, under the wings and the protection of Boaz as his protection. That's how God was providing for them. And in that moment, Somehow, miraculously, God got to use me to care for my brothers in that way. I had this conversation and this is where the chips start to get crushed. I was having this conversation with my friend Preston and we were talking a lot about what corporate responsibility looks like. Because in our culture, remember, we're foreigners to this story, but in our story, in the Western story, it's very individualized. And what you do dictates what you should have in life, right? And what others do, even part of your own family, that's not on you, you didn't do it. And so we are having this conversation and we are having this conversation about what does corporate responsibility look like? And I shared this story and I was sharing this story. Honestly, my friend Preston, he's black and myself, we were having this conversation in light of the church and in light of when should the church be responsible for things other parts of the church have done, especially in history. And we were having this conversation just to be candid in light of racial tensions going on right now. And I shared this story and I said, I think maybe what God's been showing me lately is I I gotta be an older brother to some of these knucklehead Christians. I gotta take responsibility for maybe the, the damage they've done in the past. Not just me, but like, what is the church called to now? And my friend Preston looked at me and he was like, That's great. Don't forget, you're also my brother. Don't forget, also, we're your brother and sister. And you got to be, as a white man right now, Chris, he goes, you got to be our older brother right now. And he doesn't mean I'm the older brother because, like, I've got things more figured out, right? Doesn't mean I'm the older brother because, like, somehow I'm I'm more superior or whatever. No, no, no. The older brother gets to drive first. And then what, what does that mean? Like, now you have a responsibility to drive your little. Brother and sister around to the practice and stuff, right? Go to the grocery store. With great privilege comes great responsibility. I think Ben Parker said that in Spider-Man. Something to the effect. Or the way it's said in scripture, we are blessed to be a blessing. In every culture, in every single culture, this is not unique to America, there are people who are more blessed and privileged with certain things because of how culture has structured things. And there are certain people who are more oppressed and vulnerable because of that. We have a history of that that we gotta own that doesn't go away overnight because some laws changed. And yes, it's been twisted and abused. And there's, there's some other stories out there too that are saying, well, if you have privileges, you should feel guilty just by who you are. And I wanna say like, that's not the true story either, you guys. Please don't hear me say that, okay? There's two extremes that's like, well, if you're this person in privilege, feel guilty, shame on you. You gotta you know, do something to make it right. And then there's the opposite that says, no, 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 this whole divide doesn't even exist. There is no oppressed. There is no vulnerable. Remember, the gospel is a third way. It's neither of those false stories. It's a unique story that is true. And it's a story that says, In every single culture in this broken, messed up world, people have found ways to put themselves above others and find power over others. And God says, when I bless you with something, it's to bless others. It's to care for them. It's to welcome them in your strength. To use your privilege as a responsibility to care for. Yes, Boaz, you have every opportunity to take advantage of Ruth, but you have every responsibility to take care of her. And so what does that mean for us today? What does that look like for the church in America in 2020? And every single one of us have stories probably of how we felt like we've been oppressed and made vulnerable. And we don't take that lightly. We don't take that away from you. And in those cases, Lord willing, he provided other people to come in and share their blessing and privilege with you and care for you in that way. And at the same time, every single one of us too, just by nature of us sitting here, I could say this, have some kind of privilege. The fact that you can afford clothes right now, the fact that we can afford AC that sometimes works in here right now, the fact that you found a way to get transportation here, we have some benefits that many people in our world do not have. And how do we use that power, that strength, that privilege, that blessing to be a blessing to others around us. That's the story that crushed my chips this week. Some of you are like, why does he keep talking about chips? Don't worry. Verse 15. When she, Ruth, got up to gather grain, Boaz ordered his young men, let her even gather grain among the bundles and don't humiliate her. Pull out some stocks from the bundles for her and leave them for her to gather. Don't rebuke her. And so Ruth gathered grain in the field until evening and she beat out what she had gathered and it was about 26 quarts of barley. Many translations yours might say an ephah of barley. That's about two weeks worth of food. That's unheard of. She picked up the grain and went into the town where her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She brought out what she had left over from her meal and gave it to her. Her mother-in-law said to her, where did you gather barley today and where did you work? May the Lord bless the man who noticed you. Listen, already, Naomi doesn't even know half the story. And she's turned from, at the end of chapter one, saying, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Nothing in life is pleasant. And now, just by simply providing some food, she's like, oh, things are starting to look up, right? This is the first time you can almost read in that, like, that Mara or Naomi is starting to smile a little bit. And she doesn't know half of it. God's doing so much more. When I read this story, it reminded me of how when God, when Jesus was feeding 5,000 people, right? And the disciples, they went out and they shared everything. And then they picked up baskets full and there's 12 baskets full left. There was enough to go around, plus more, plus enough to fill all of them for joining in the work Jesus called them to, to care for the hungry. And that's why when we heard that story, like Ruth sat down at the table and she ate until she was full. It's the same words we hear that the disciples got. And then she takes more back with her, plenty. And then you know what happens after that story when Jesus feeds 5,000 men and who knows how many women and children were there? And some people start following him and they're like, we gotta follow this dude around. And he turns them at some point and he goes, you know what? You follow me because you ate. Because you got food. But if only you knew what I was really doing. And that's what's happening with Naomi right now. Starting to smile because you're getting some bread. Naomi, the bread of life is at work here. Let's see what happens. Ruth told her mother-in-law, this is the second part of verse 19, whom she had worked with and said, the name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may the Lord bless him because he has not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. Naomi continued, this man is a close relative. He is one of our family redeemers. What that meant in that time is if a woman lost her husband, like Ruth had, if that husband had a brother, that brother had a responsibility again, right? A responsibility to marry her. It's super weird in our culture, I know. Remember, this is a different story we're entering into. We're the foreigners. To marry that woman, why? Because women could not provide for themselves in this culture of patriarchy that would oppress them. So welcome them in, care for them, let them provide children and it will carry on the name of your brother too. And so it's a love to the dead and it's a love to the living. And so they had this custom of the family redeemer or the kinsman redeemer, you might've heard of that. This is another foreshadow, you guys. Something greater is going on here. It's not just bread. There's gonna be redemption for Naomi and Ruth, but that foreshadowing is a family redeemer for you and I too as the foreigners in this story. That God is at work to bring care and love and redemption to us in our oppressed state of sin and rebellion. Verse 20, then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May the Lord bless him, my brothers because he has not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. Naomi continued, the man is a close relative. He is one of our family redeemers. Ruth the Moabitess said, he also told me, stay with my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And so Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, my daughter, it is good for you to work until his female servants or with his female servants so that nothing will happen to you in another field. Ruth stayed close to Boaz's female servants and gathered grain until the barley and the wheat harvest were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Boaz is not just trying to hook up here. This happens for a while and she keeps going back home to her mother-in-law. In In this culture, Boaz could have easily said, hey, come be my wife and I'll take care of you. If he's giving her all this stuff just to hook up, just to connect, could have done it already, right? He doesn't. She goes home to her mother-in-law. He's doing it. In fact, we see in the next chapter, spoiler alert, when Ruth reaches out to him to make a romantic connection, he's surprised. He's like, why me? I'm an old dude. Why? He's doing this to care for her because he has the strength to do so. And he invites her, come and celebrate under the protection of the Lord's wings. He said, you have come and gathered in under the Lord's wings. What did Jesus say his last week of life as he's standing on a hill overlooking the city of Jerusalem? He says, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you under my wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks. Saying, no, 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 I'm stepping into the danger, even though it's your fault, you mess us up, you knuckleheads. I'm going to be the older brother. I'm stepping into the danger and I'm covering you. You cannot, death, you cannot come to them. You got to come through me. You got to come to me first. N.T. Wright says that picture, you you see, you think of a barn house that's been caught on fire and you find a, a hen whose wings are spread out and there's tons of accounts of this and you would pick it up and under there living chicks. Because when the fire came to the barn house, the mother instinctively covered her chicks and took the fire upon herself, entered into the danger on their behalf, said, come through me. You don't get to them. And that's what Jesus did for us at the cross. He says this the last week of his life. And the end of the week, he goes to the cross and he covers us completely. He steps into the mess of this world. He steps into the brokenness. He goes out and he meets death in the street and says, no, no, you don't get to come on my house. You don't come on my property. You don't come to my family. And because Jesus fully entered into that and he covers us, we too will get to live with him in eternity. Revelation 21, that we will live with God. He will be our God and we will be his people. Jesus had no obligation to us. He had every opportunity to turn away, but he had, he took, he gave himself the responsibility to care for us as the true perfect older brother. And now what? Now, because we've been blessed by life, by salvation, by rescuing, we are blessed to be a blessing. So we go now as one who's been covered by Jesus, taking the blessings and the privileges of being in the family of God and sharing it with those who don't have it, inviting them and welcoming them in to the covering of the wings of God. Amen? Would you pray with me that by some miraculous work of the spirit, us knuckleheads would be that?